We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in we're going to be in chapter 12. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Um, it's a longer chapter. We're going to be sort of flipping around in the chapter. Usually we just kind of go sort of verse by verse and paragraph after paragraph, but this is going to be jumping around a little bit in the chapter. So you would be helped if you had your Bible open to see where we're at. I don't know if uh, you're having similar conversations that I'm having with friends and neighbors, or if you're reading similar things uh, in the news or on Christian blogs, but at least I'm reading a lot. It's sort of a Christian doomsday articles about how, you know, uh, particularly in America, that Christianity is shrinking and that each generation is getting harder in order to reach for Jesus. And they give their various reasons, um, you know, Christian hypocrisy and those sorts of things. And I'm guessing there's lots of reasons for this. But though we could probably make an argument for why there's maybe a, a lower percentage of Christians in America, though Christianity's polling numbers aren't great right now, in some sense, Jesus is doing better than ever. Right? I, I don't know if you have conversations with your non-Christian neighbors, but, but they're fine with Jesus. Christianity, organized religion, not, not, not so much. But Jesus? Yeah, he's great. I mean, at best, he's tolerated. There, there's even a, a marketing campaign, I'm guessing some of you have seen this. There's a marketing campaign trying to introduce this generation to Jesus. If you, saw this, if you were watching the Super Bowl last year, that's where I think it's, it began. It's called something like He Gets Us. I guess you guys have seen this? Wh- whoever this is, they're spending, or a group of people are spending $100 million. Man, what I would do with $100 million. Probably not this, but $100 million in an ad campaign targeting and trying to introduce people to Jesus. Jesus, I think a lot of people are fine with. They'll put up with him. Maybe even embrace Jesus. But the Jesus in the Bible and the Jesus we're going to encounter today in John 12, a little bit more complicated. Jesus' polling numbers might be fine in your cul-de-sac, but his polling numbers back in his day, not great. If Barna was doing a kind of a study on the ministry of Jesus, trying to figure out if he was successful, I'm pretty sure Barna would say he failed. A lot of people rejected him. A lot of family and friends rejected him. He was unpopular. In one sense, a wild failure. Few followed him. Actually, Jesus was so unpopular, he was so rejected, that people not only wanted him dead, not only wanted to kill him, they accomplished it. Now, the Gospel of John is divided up nicely in half. It's, it's a really cool book when you think about it. You have the first 11 chapters, which theologians will call the Book of Signs. And in the fall, we kind of were marching through this. There's sign after sign after sign, kind of culminating in the ultimate sign, Lazarus rising from the grave. And all these signs are pointing to a basic reality. These signs were pointing to the reality of who Jesus is, that he is a long 
long-awaited Messiah. And so he's, he's healing, he's uh, you know, turning uh, uh, from water to wine, he's doing all these sorts of signs, all pointing to his identity as the Messiah. All culminating in chapter 11. And then theologians talk about from chapter 13 to the end of the, the Gospel of John, that that's the, the book of glory. All pointing to the, the Son who is going to be glorified most ultimately in his death and resurrection. But in the middle, in chapter 12, it's sort of a hinge. It's like a uh, you've seen like races in the baton pass. This is the sort of baton pass literarily in the Gospel of John. And it's sort of the, the central theological kind of high mark, as it were, in the Gospel of John. And it answers the most basic fundamental of questions. My guess is you walked in this room, you've got some questions. Like, is God going to provide for me? Is God going to show up? Is God going to help my family? Is God going to do this? Is God going to speak to me? Well, one of the most fundamental questions that you can ask and therefore answer to which John's going to do here in chapter 12 is simply this. Why did Jesus die? It's a complicated question. And like all complicated questions, there's layers to it. And so John sort of asks this question, but then he answers that most basic of questions. Why did Jesus die? And he's going to answer it in three ways. First, because of a demand. Or because of Jesus' demand. Second, because of unbelief. And third, because of God's glory. You're going to see these in parts. So go with me to verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having, charged, and having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. We'll stop there. So chapter, chapter 11 ends. Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. And then he, he goes and does some ministry for a while. And then eventually he comes back in chapter 13, right before Passover. And he's at a dinner party. He's hanging out with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and, and a bunch of other people, his disciples and others. And you can just imagine how wonderful this dinner party is. I mean, Jesus just rose Lazarus from the grave. And so um, they, they had this party to thank Jesus and they're eating and they're celebrating. And Martha's in the back kitchen, you know, just pulling out all the, the stops. Telling stories. I mean, in some sense, this is about as good as it can get. Like if you've ever experienced like eating with friends and just sitting down and laughing and telling stories and getting to know each other. I mean, it's about as good as it gets, right? 
And so they're there, enjoying one another, but sort of in an instant, it gets awkward. Real awkward. It gets quiet. Martha's in the back cooking, and Mary goes to her room or wherever and gets a jar of ointment, of pure nard. It's a perfume. She grabs it. She walks out to the dining room table, and she dumps it on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet. And you can imagine, I mean, these are not mansions, right? This is a small kind of area. So you can just imagine the perfume just like exploding out in the room. Like everyone knows what's going on and everyone's watching what Mary is doing. Not everyone's happy about this, are they? Not, Not everyone thinks this is a good thing. Judas just looks at this and says, Utterly wasteful. I mean, you could sell that jar of perfume for, what does it say, uh, 300 denarii? And then give it to the poor. Now, that sounds pious, but then I love John saying like, no. <laughs> Judas cares, doesn't care two licks about the poor. It's that he had sticky fingers and he was sort of the, the accountant over the, the, the ministry fund and so he could just kind of shave off and no one was looking. So he's like, oh gosh, I missed an opportunity. Well, though Jesus in, uh, John inserts this, you have to step back and think, this is an outrageous gift that Mary gives Jesus. 300 denarii, that's a year's wage. So just to kind of put it in contemporary kind of uh, terms, like Mary had went to Nordstrom and spent like, Forty or fifty thousand dollars on the most exotic perfume that you could buy. I don't know if you could do that, but I'm guessing there's some perfume worth forty or fifty thousand dollars. She buys it and thinks, "Well, this will be. I can just, you know, sell it later. It's going to go up in price. This is going to be a great investment." And then she has Jesus in her in her house, and she, uh, in response to the the great redemptive work that Jesus is talking about, and then Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. She takes that, and in an instant wastes $50,000 on Jesus. I mean, even Dave Ramsey's kind of a little, like, (laughs) wondering at this point, right? I mean, it is extravagant. Look how Jesus responds. He defends Mary, doesn't he? He says, Judas, leave her alone. Leave her alone. He says, like, the poor, you're always going to have meaning. You're going to always have an opportunity to serve the poor. And I, I think he's being sarcastic here. He's like, oh, Jesus, don't worry. There's lots of opportunities for you to serve the poor. If you want, we'll, we'll go to the soup kitchen tomorrow. You know, he's, he's being slightly sarcastic. Like, the poor you're always going to have with this. But then Jesus once again reminds them that he's not always going to be here. He's not going to always be with them. Jesus is going somewhere. Mary's act is extraordinary. I mean, she she gave what she had. And at that, really what she's doing is she's saying, who is her great and ultimate treasure? Because there's a contrast in these eight verses, isn't there? There's the 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 contrast of Mary and Joseph or uh, and Judas. So Mary is kind of explaining or portraying or pointing to where her treasure is, and Judas is pointing to where his treasure is. 
Mary's treasure is sitting at a table. Judas's treasure is evaporating in midair. Mary's treasure is Jesus. Her God wasn't wealth or beauty, that little nest egg that we just have to protect or guard just in case, you know, something bad happens. No, no, no. Her great treasure was sitting right there. Whereas Judas, well, we know what he treasured. He treasured wealth and comfort and money and prestige and working his way up the corporate ladder. And right there we just see this this demand that comes upon the world as it relates to Jesus. And you see it perfectly in the contrast of Mary and Judas. Jesus is demanding allegiance. He is demanding that he is the Lord. I mean, if he wasn't the Lord, he would reject that and say, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Like, I'm kind of, I'm great, but like, that's too much. But he doesn't say that. He's like, oh, whatever you have, whatever gifts you have, he accepts them. Whereas Judas is really pointing to, well, he's pointing to what he worships. But then if you go down to verse 20, you, you see this demand that, that, that Jesus is putting before the world, particularly the disciples here, but then it applies to us in verse 20, and it's just elaborated even more. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Gentiles, some God-fearers. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Right? So, so these Gentiles, they, these God-fearers, they want to see Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. They've got the questions for Jesus. And so they say, hey, can we have some time with Jesus? Philip then went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. So, so up, up to this point, you remember that Jesus keeps saying, Nope, the hour isn't ready. The hour is not time. It's not time. It's not time. And here, for the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, yep, it's time. The hour is at hand. Now, what is it that hour pointing to? Just keep reading. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is why Jesus died. In one sense. It's why people continually die apart from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It is his demand to submit your life to his lordship, to his reign. I mean, I know we have conversations and debates about apologetics or whatever, but for my, uh, for all of the time I've hung out with non-Christians or, or people who reject Jesus, this really is the ultimate reason. You mean Jesus is Lord, not me? You mean I'm no longer God in my life? It's this demand, this exclusive devotion. I mean, we say things like Jesus is love, which is very, very true. But if that's all we said, I mean, that, that, that'd be great for a Hallmark card. And the world would, in one sense, love it. 
But the moment we say that God is love and at the same time, in the same way, he is perfectly Lord over you, that you are not God. The moment you try to de-God a person as God, well, you get stories like Judas. It just rises to the surface where you are putting your trust and hope. And I think it's wonderful that here in this section, in, starting in verse 24, he, he uses this, this imagery uh, and this metaphor of grain and seed. And he's talking about his own life, but then he applies it to all of us, right? He, he, he's, he's talking about his death, and he says, um, it's, it's like a seed, and I, I'm no farmer, and I can barely spell farm. But, but what I know is that you got to put a seed down, and it has to, in one sense, die in order for the apple tree to come, all right? At least that's what I tell my kids. Um, and so he's saying, I'm going to die. This is Jesus. I'm, I'm going to die. But in my death, it's similar to like a, a, a seed that, that the, the, the fruit, that the harvest is coming through my death. But then he takes that and says, yes, this, this is about me. But then he applies it to us and says, it's not just that the, Jesus has to die for, for everlasting life to just kind of flow out of it. It's that we too must die. Did you notice that? Over and over again. And so the idea is if you want to win, you got to lose. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to win, well, spiritually speaking, you have to lose. If you want to serve, well, if you want to be served, no, it's about serving. There's an upside downness to this. And in the same way that Christ is dying, and it'll be a manifestation of, of God's glory that will then burst out fruitfulness, he's saying in the same way that demand falls on all of us, to die to ourselves, to die to the ways in which we think that we rule and reign our lives, and to put our soul allegiance to Christ and to live in light of or principally like Mary lived. To say, this is what I have. This is all that I have. And I want to give it to you, Jesus. And I think that's why Mary is so helpful. Because we, we might think, well, what does that look like practically? And I think for, for, for Mary, well, one thing I think just by way of application this looks like is just, just put yourself for a moment in Mary's shoes. I mean, she got her brother back from the grave. I mean, he's like, she's like, what do you want? It's yours, right? That, that, the gift is too much. But she's meditating on Jesus' saving of Lazarus, which then made her generous. Well, in a very similar way, we've gotten far more than uh, a gift that, that Mary got. You see, Lazarus is going to die again. But Lazarus was a parable, in a sense, of a greater reality, which is saying that, that God in Christ is going to raise people spiritually from the grave as they put their faith and trust in Jesus. So as you meditate on that, in the same way that Mary's meditating on Christ's work in her brother's life, as you meditate on Christ's work in your life to save you, to save those around you, to redeem a people for himself, I think out of that will burst generosity like Mary. 
So there's a lot of, you know, every kind of January, I, I look at like my schedule and my life and I'm like, what do I need to cut out? Like, where, do I, where should I spend more of my time? Let me just encourage you. You will be well, it'll be well worth your time to, through Bible studies and small groups and one-on-one in your quiet time as you get up in the morning or as you go to bed, to meditate on Christ's love for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, redeeming you to himself. As you do that, I think all of our lives will continually be more in conformity or look more like Mary. We will have an extravagant generosity because we want to give everything to Jesus because he's done so much for us. But some will reject Jesus in light of that because the demand is, in one sense, quite high. Jesus is saying, what's your treasure? Is it Jesus or is it something else? So that's number one. People rejected and killed Jesus because, in some sense, his his call and demand for allegiance was too radical, but there's a second. Jesus was killed because, well, unbelief. Go to verse 9. We're going to be speeding up, so don't worry. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd uh, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hazana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So if you go to verse 12, kind of through verse 16, we see that this is the the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And Jesus gets on a donkey, which was in accordance with this prophecy in Zechariah. And as he goes in, the, the crowd that's all kind of there for the festival, they're just, the crowd is swelling and Jesus is coming in and, and they begin to, to praise this coming one. They begin to shout. They begin to quote one of the Psalms. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're announcing the long-awaited Messiah. Sort of. They're praising Jesus. They have hopes that he is the Messiah, but but by their worship or by an element in their worship, we know that they're not exactly thinking in the right terms. We see this language of that they're grabbing palm branches. And we think, oh, that's, that's interesting, right? And uh, sometimes in, in worship, we have kids grab palm branches. But, but palm branches were an interesting image. So what those were, 
they were, in Israel at that time, they were a, a, akin to like the, the bald eagle in America, right? The, the moment you say something about, or, or put maybe a, a bald eagle, it's, it's supposed to conjure up nationalistic patriotism, right? Well, the palm branch was similar in Israel. It was for hundreds of years a symbol of national hope, of patriotic hope, of military hope. A couple hundred years earlier, you had, uh, and we, we talked about this in, uh, in our study in Daniel, but you had Greece really oppressing God's people in Jerusalem, and you had uh, eventually this, this guy named Judas Maccabeus, and he rises to kind of power, and he, he starts this guerrilla warfare, and he eventually pushes Greek out, Greece out, and they take back the temple in Jerusalem, and there's shouts of praise, and it's glorious, this, this sort of guerrilla military campaign. And what was their symbol? What was the symbol of their victory? It was the palm branch. And so here, as Jesus is kind of walking in, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, as they are singing shouts, they want this Messiah, but it's as if they're all linking arms, the crowd wanting desperately for Jesus to be the long-awaited military savior that would push back Rome. And so they're hoping that this would be a kind of a call to arms. So you can just imagine the religious leaders are like sitting on a powder keg. No wonder they're fearful. No wonder Caiaphas, right, back in uh, chapter 11, is like, we got to get rid of Jesus. Better he die than, than we lose the whole nation. The tensions couldn't be higher. And that's why, and that's why in many ways, Jesus then goes on in verse 9 and 11. He explains well, why the religious leaders in particular, but then the crowd in general, why they need to get rid of him. It's because of Lazarus, right? They even say we got to get rid of Lazarus there in verse 9. Lazarus was pointing to this sign, but then people are gathering, and Jesus is doing these miraculous things, but, but they're not really believing that Jesus actually rose Lazarus from the grave. They're just worried about the implications of people believing it or maybe believing it, or the possibility of believing it, because the crowd is getting bigger. And they're wondering if, in doing so, Rome's going to need to step in, and therefore they're going to lose their power, their prestige, they're going to lose everything. And so, kind of in between the triumphal entry, we have verse 9 through 11, which explains that the, the religious leaders moved to kill Jesus because of their, their unbelief that Jesus really is the Messiah. And then in verse 19... It just goes, goes on. Or verse 18, it says that the reason why the crowd went to meet Jesus was that they heard he had done these signs. And at this point, Lazarus becomes a witness of Jesus' true identity. And John's clear that many believed, but even more, many did not believe. And because of that unbelief, because they rejected the signs, because they rejected what the signs were pointed to in the person of Jesus Christ, they moved to kill it and we to kill him. And we see it extremely laid out in verses 37 to the end of the chapter. So let me just read it quickly. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. There's the reason. Unbelief. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, 
Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things. He saw his, he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even in the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so as whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself gives me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Verse 37 summarizes why so many moved to get rid of Jesus. Though he had done so many signs, miraculous signs, all pointing to his identity, they still did not believe. Sign after sign after sign. All all authenticating who Jesus was, and yet they still didn't believe. And you'll notice, if you're looking at the translation, the English translation, that there's two texts that are um, um, uh, um, indicating that there's a quote here. Um, indented is the word I was looking for. And it's two texts from Isaiah. Isaiah 53 and then Isaiah 6. You might remember that scene in Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this vision and he goes into the very throne room of God. And then Isaiah gets the worst commissioning into ministry that has ever happened. He says, I'm going to commission you into ministry. You're going to preach good news. You're going to, I'm going to tell you what to say and you're going to teach my word and no one's going to listen to you and everyone's going to reject you. Goodness, what a horrible ministry. But what God's saying is I'm, the the people have sinned. They have broken the covenant. And he says, I'm going to raise you up to, as a witness against them of their unbelief. And in a similar way, he's saying, what was true in Isaiah's day is now true here. That Jesus has, right, the first 11 chapters, Jesus has, has put all these signs about who he is. And now these signs are not a witness authenticating who Jesus is. They're a witness against the people. They're a, they're a witness of judgment against these people for their rejection of Jesus and their unbelief. So for a season, these signs were a testimony to the people of who Jesus is, but for now, they're a witness against the people. That's what we see in verse 40 through 50. It's why this idea of judgment comes up. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word of his testimony, the word of his signs, those are now a means of judgment for unbelief. I I, I think sometimes we conflate unbelief with doubt, and I think we do that to our peril. We we all have doubts. 
Unbelief is not the same thing as doubt. Unbelief, and we see it here, is a calculated, hard-hearted rejection of the signs of Jesus. They're a hard-hearted rejection of who Jesus is. The person of Jesus. It's a turning away of God. It's a turning away of Jesus Christ and his work. Now, faith, in contrast, is a reliance on Jesus for our salvation, whereas unbelief is a rejection of Jesus, even if you have some hopes, even if you're kind of crossing your fingers behind your back. And it really is tragic, this this just prevalent unbelief that we see. Jesus died because people mistook him for just a, a menace when really he was a marvelous Messiah. And they moved to get rid of him. That's the second reason. But there's one more, and it is the most profound, in some sense, it is the deepest theology of John. It is the sort of middle of the entire Gospel of John, and it's simply this. Jesus died for God's glory. Look at, look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So if you might remember back in verse 23, Jesus announces that finally the hour has come. The hour of his glory. The hour of his death and resurrection is coming slowly to its end. Conclusion. It's finally coming. And in light of this, it says, verse 27, as Jesus is contemplating this being lifted up on a cross, it says that he is, his soul is troubled, which sounds nice, but that's not the idea here. This is anguish. This is horror. This is just the, 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 the utter nightmare of the cross, he's contemplating it. And similar to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he's, he's thinking about being lifted up and all the implications of it, and his soul is troubled. And so like Gethsemane, he prays. He prays about this. But notice his prayer in verse, verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. In Jesus' life and his death, the pre-incarnate Christ to the ascended Christ. All that Christ did from his life, death, resurrection, every word, every atom in his being, all was meant to glorify God. Everything he did, 
glorified his Father. And so he prays that this act would be an act that would bring glorification and glory to God. Which is, which is weird, because I think in some ways when we think of the cross, when we think of the crucifixion, we, we think of it like, oh, it's wonderful because it's all about me. The, the cross is all about me. Above all, he thought of me, right? Remember that old song? Rubbish. Right? Jesus dying on a cross, above all, did not think of little Stephen as he's dying on a cross. He was thinking, and his primary kind of goal was to shine a beacon of glory on his father. That's who he thought of above all. It's God and God's glory. The crucifixion in that sense is heaven-centered. It's God-centered. It's not us-centered. Everything Jesus did was about bringing glory to his father. Now, glory is a sort of odd word, isn't it? But I think we, in one sense, know what it means, right? Glory is that light that just bursts out of a star, right? Or um, I, I love taking my kids to school, um, mostly because the, the, the drive, well, probably maybe once every two weeks, you get to see Mount Rainier. And when you do, um, I, I tell my kids that it, that's Stevens Mountain. Um, I call it Mount Stevens. And my kids think it's annoying, and I go, no, 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 God, God, that's, that's for me. Like, but but the, the, the glory that comes out of Mount Rainier is that, the, just the majesty, the bigness, how sturdy it is, that, that, that feeling of being so small. And so when Jesus is saying that the, the, the act that is going to bring glory to the Father, that is going to sort of be a light bursting forth like from a star, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so if you want to see what the glory of God looks like, if you want to see what the glory of the Father is, if you want to see the majesty of God, the love of God, the justice of God, if you want to see any of it, look at the cross. Look at Jesus being lifted up. The Father says, I have, I will glorify you as you die and are lifted up, and then I will vindicate you in the resurrection. And notice he says that the reason why Jesus also died is that he's going to bring glory to God by, verse 23, drawing men and women to himself. God is going to be most kind of dramatically glorified. And this is, this is just, when you stand back and think about it, it, it in one sense doesn't make sense but that God is going to be most glorified in the drawing of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. God is going to be most glorified in the salvation of sinners. And so he says, as the sun is lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. Not, not, not meaning that every single person will believe, but meaning all sorts of men and women from, every, from all various backgrounds and tribes and nations, and he's going to be, that the lifting up of the sun and his death and resurrection is going to be the means that is going to bring glory to God by bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. That's how God's glory is going to be manifested. So if you say like, oh, why did Jesus die? Like, if you look at the, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're like, well, he died because of sort of blasphemy because he was, he was saying kind of these crazy theological truths like, like he and the Father are one, but here... It's not just that he's dying because people want to get rid of him. 
he's a nuisance, it's not just, well, because he's saying he's Lord. He's dying because this is the, the ordained plan of God to save sinners in drawing humanity to himself. It would be through the death of God's own son. And some respond to Jesus. Some don't. And so Jesus gives one final warning at the end of this section. He once again says that he is the light. We've seen this. John loves this imagery of Jesus as the light versus the darkness. He says you should walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you. And then says so that you can become sons of light. This is the center of John's theology, right? So you could say that the first 11 chapters are all kind of pointing to with these very signs who Jesus is. And Jesus is simply this. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ who is who will manifest glory and the glory of God, his Father, by dying in order to draw all people to himself, making men and women sons of the king. That's why Jesus died. That's why he had to die. That's why he was promised that he would die. It is the means by which God is glorified. So, what does this mean for us? Three things, and they're going to be really, really quick, and then we're going to pray. Jesus glorifies God, but, but our chief end, as Christians, should be the glory of God. So, whether we eat or drink, however we live, in the back of our mind, we should be thinking through how is this action? How is my life? How is this thing I'm doing? How is it bringing glory to God? So before you send that text or that tweet, that should be something that kind of permeates your mind. Is this going to bring glory to God? I mean, we're not going to always get that right, but it is an important question to ask. Second, the, the cross of Christ really is the, 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 the central aspect of our theology. And it's never going to be fashionable. I mean, it wasn't in Paul's day. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians in the first couple chapters. And he's saying like, hey, people don't want me to talk. I just keep talking about the cross. People don't want me to talk about cross. But I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep talking about the cross. And even in our day, people want us to shut up about the cross. You're just, you just talk too much about Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Just move on. We can't. And so from this pulpit, every Sunday, and from these instruments and from our voices, we will pray and praise and preach about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you must demand nothing less than that. And then third, this, this, this exhortation to keep walking in the light, that's a great application for us. There are things in all of our lives that darken and dampen our affection for Jesus. You see, Mary, she extravagantly displayed her love for Jesus in her behavior of dumping that perfume on his feet. She served Jesus. And there are many things in our lives that are dampening our love 
allegiance and our worship of Jesus. Walk in the light. The good, the beautiful, the noble, walk in those sorts of things. 2023 should be a year in which your rhythms should be saturated with what, what will bring God glory and then also how can I fill my life with more light? Because when you do, I mean, you can't stare at Mary and not go, this is beautiful, this is glorious, this is amazing. And we've all experienced that when we've hung out with people and they're just living outrageous, radical, generous lives, you just go, I don't know what the Kool-Aid you're drinking, but I want some. Walk in the light. You are in Christ. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are sons of the light, meaning you are in God's family. Continue to walk in him. Let's pray. God, we... uh, We know that in many ways there is darkness and brokenness and sin. And even in our text, we're reminded that you have conquered the grave. You have conquered death. You have conquered sin and Satan. And so we thank you for the promise of life with you, the promise of eternal life with you, the promise of abundant life in you. And so we pray, we pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper appreciation of your son, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his ascension, his, his current ministry intercessing on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that we would, in a deeper way, understand what it truly means to be children of light. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.